British Spy Stories, Season 2, The Kill Order. Episode 14 The banks of the Serpentine Lake in Hyde Park are completely deserted on this frosty March morning. Ducks huddle together to maintain body heat in the reed beds. A Bernard pulls his coat collar up to fend off the worst of the biting wind that whistles past him. Given his senior position within MI6, he is allowed to use the access road to the park, and his Jaguar Sentinel sits ticking to coolness behind the Serpentine Bar and Kitchen restaurant as he walks away. He tracks along the bank of the lake, then breaks off north into trees towards the old police house. Marcus Murphy is already waiting, rubbing his hands together and blowing into cupped fingers to add warmth. What news, Marcus? he says. About what, sir? Our friend in Denmark. Morrison, says Marcus, still looking blank. Safe in his safe house, is he, Marcus? Just waiting for the Yanks to sort out the onward route arrangement, Sir Bernard. Well, you're wrong, Marcus. Yesterday, Professor Morrison took it upon himself to abscond from our gentle hands and make off into an overcast Copenhagen afternoon. I didn't know, says Marcus. No. No, you bloody didn't know, did you? Sir Bernard's raised voice carries over the trees. Why am I telling you this, Marcus? Why aren't you telling me? Apologies, Sir Bernard, says Murphy. I've been distracted. Distracted, man? Distracted from the priority operations of your patch? Not bloody good enough. It won't happen again, sir. What is it that's been distracting you? Says Sir Bernard. Something personal, sir. It's affecting your work, Marcus. I'll sort it out. When? Two days, maybe three. Sir Bernard pauses and explores the face of the man in front of him. His years in the service tell him that Murphy is barely coping. What other priority ops have you got live? He says. There's the French terrorist op, Blue Fly, Operation Rosa, blocking the leaks from the Maltese government, and Windfall, the Belarus migration gang. I'm going to take Windfall from you, so you can commit more time to the others. But, sir... Sir Bernard holds up a gloved hand in the cold air. Decision made, Marcus. The men look at each other, across a stretch of ground that seems wider. You can go. Murphy spins on his heel and walks away. Sir Bernard gets his phone out from his inside pocket and dials a number. Lawrence, he says to his assistant. I want you to get in touch with Agent Blackhawk, please, urgently. Tell her that I am taking on leadership of Windfall, that she is the field lead for. Also, I wanted to help with the Morrison search. Tell her both of these are a top priority. He brings the phone down from his ear and ends the call. In the distance, he can just see Murphy walking away and knows that he will have to do more to address the issues with that particular man. He turns in the cold air and starts to make his way back across Hyde Park, to his waiting Jaguar. Towards dusk, Riverside finds a small guesthouse, 
along the route that Catherine took before him. He books in for the night, and sleeps badly. At daybreak, he gets back on the road, and an hour later, the flag on the sat-nav shows the hotel where she ended up. is just around the next bend. He slows and sees a side road off the autobahn that gives access to the hotel and two houses next to it. He pulls off the highway and stops the car. He sits for a minute, just watching. There is no traffic on the main road, and no movement around the hotel or the houses at this hour. He can see a car parked beside one of the houses, and another partly on the curb ahead of him, maybe fifty yards. He checks on his phone for the reg number of the car that Catherine was taken in. It's the same number. This is the place. Riverside steps out and presses the key fob to lock the doors of his rental car. He walks along the road towards the buildings, all the time watching for anything that will give him a clue about what may be waiting for him. He reaches the first house. It's dark inside and looks locked up for the winter. A summer residence, maybe. He walks on. The hotel is next. A blue Subaru sits on hard standing next to the building. Riverside checks around to see if any neighbours are watching, but they're not. He walks off the road and down a narrow path that gives access to the back of the hotel. He tries a back window, but it's locked. He slips through a tall wooden gate that isolates the garden from the driveway and slowly closes the gate behind him. He draws his glock and scans the rear windows, one at a time, but sees nothing of note. He pushes down the handle of double doors that give access to a patio area for summer drinks, but the door's locked. He peers in through the glass and pushes one hand up against his face to shield the reflection and give him a clear view of the interior. He can see no one inside. He drops onto one knee, pulls his skeleton keys from his back pocket, and unlocks the door. Riverside takes one step inside, listens, steps again. No noises reach his ears. He moves swiftly through the ground floor rooms, but none are inhabited. The main hallway is large, with a staircase curving up and away in the centre of the space. He walks on, up the steps, two at a time, but pausing to listen. His glock is in front of him, pointing skyward, both of his hands clasped around the weapon. On the first floor, there's a long corridor that runs to a closed door at the end, and a stairway to the top floor. He goes further up the stairs first, and scouts the top floor which seems to have only unused hotel rooms, ready for the next season. He checks them all and approaches the final door. He pushes the handle down and enters the room. Even though he has seen many dead bodies in his time, he has rarely seen one like this. The man is lying on a double bed, face down, a bread knife rammed home between his shoulder blades. The bedclothes are completely red from his blood. The coldness of the air has stopped any flies or decomposition, but Riverside guesses the man's been there for a day, at least. 
He moves around the room, looking for more clues as to what might have happened. The body has been pushed to one side and is on top of the duvet, so with someone else inside the bed. Riverside shifts the body and looks under the covers. There is another red stain at the foot of the bed. He takes blood samples from the man and from the stain, then runs blood analyses on his phone. The first result pings up on the screen after two minutes. The man is not on Oberon, but this is the same blood as the sample from the farmhouse. The sample under the duvet is next. This time, a match on Oberon. Coniston again. Catherine was here, and again spilled her blood in this room. Riverside drops down to the first floor and checks the rooms there. Only some of these are guest bedrooms. Some are used by the family who own the place. He walks to a door marked private at the end of the corridor. He pushes it open. An old couple are both there, in bed. Their throats cut. Oh, Catherine, he whispers to himself. What have you done? Catherine opens her eyes. She is in the small square bedroom in Lily Cornwell's flat, nestled in the back streets of Innsbruck away from the touristy areas. Her body feels bruised and her head hurts, but only now that she has started to relax does she realise the full extent of her injuries. Her leg wound is itching and she runs her fingers over the bandage that the doctor had put on last night. She gets up and goes downstairs to the living room, Noises of food preparation sidle out of the kitchen, so she sits on the sofa, just taking in the piece. Lily walks in from the kitchen. She is slight and small, with large green eyes. When she'd arrived to collect her from the pavement outside the British consulate, Catherine had wondered if Lily would be able to help her at all. But Lily proved her wrong, and had been exactly what Catherine had wanted at that moment. Someone who could give a semblance of normal life after three days of turmoil. She sits down next to Catherine and looks at her like her mother used to. Lily says that Catherine can call her office at any time to let them know how she is. It's the third time that Lily has said that. That Catherine has yet to call London Control. Lily's flat feels safe and she just wants to stay out of the loop for a little while longer. Lily continues the conversation about Catherine's work. Catherine's brain is not running up to speed yet and can't remember the cover story that she's supposed to give in these situations. Also, as Lily is part of the British Civil Service, Catherine isn't that motivated to try and recall what she's supposed to say. What is starting to worry her, though, is she can't remember all of the details of the events over the last three days. Psych Branch would say that she's blanking out bad memories in order to protect herself. Eventually, she says she's tired and Lily relents her inquisition and returns to making lunch for them both. By the early evening, Lily's manager calls her to ask about her patient, and Lily goes outside to the balcony to take the call. How is she, Lily? Recovering, she says. Slow at first, but gaining in strength all the time. Good, you're looking after her, he says. Of course, but something doesn't quite feel right about all of this. What do you mean? She won't talk about her job or anything, she says. In fact, she won't really say anything about herself at all. Some people are like that. And her injuries. What about them? 
She said her boyfriend hit her, and she's got cuts all over her hands. Lily builds momentum about the point she wants to make. The leg wound is deep. The doctor said it needed stitches, but she refused. I've seen domestic violence before, but nothing like this. I can check her out, he says. What's her full name? Catherine Grosvenor. And she's definitely in the civil service? Yes, but she hasn't said where. Let me get in touch with her boss, then, he says. I'll tell them that she's with us and see what they say. On the other side of the glass, Catherine can see Lily talking as she stands on the balcony. All MI6 field operatives have training in lip-reading, and from the conversation she's just witnessed, Catherine reckons she has 24 hours before she has to move on again.